This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. I am Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini. And today, we are going to talk about the first book of the Winning Slowly epistemology book and film club. Also known as Season 8. And yes, that's literally what the Season 8 title says on the website. That's right. That's what we're doing And here. film is in parentheticals, because we're probably going to watch a lot fewer movies than we read books, but it's still going to happen. It's, it's still part of it. And as we mentioned in last episode, we are talking about Plato's Phaedrus. Now, before we talk about this, <laughs> I have a few things to say. One, I've already read this. So... If I sound like I have more experience talking about Plato's Phaedrus than Chris does, it's because I do. <laughs> I did this in grad school. I didn't like it then. <laughs> and spoilers, he doesn't like it now. I, I probably like it a little bit more now than I did then, but I, it's still not on my high on my list. No. Two, there are some awkward bits because the Greeks did some practices that we don't espouse in Western modern culture. Confirm. We're just going to run right over them without comment for now. And third, Plato's Phaedrus has as many interpretations as it has people who have read it, basically. It is incredibly dense, and parts of it are intended to be ironic, but we don't (laughs) know which parts. So... A, we should have an irony punctuation mark. This would have made everything a lot more helpful. I mean, when when this got written down, we'll talk about the irony of its having been written down later. They didn't have punctuation marks at all, so... I know, I know. But they, if there was one, it would have been <laughs> it might really have helped. helpful. <laughs> if that were, can you imagine a world in which the only punctuation mark which existed was an irony punctuation mark? That would be delightful. It would be a really... <laughs> really delineated, very specific types of communication worlds. <laughs> no, no, no. Irony is really important, guys. We're going to make sure... We don't care about anything you else. Know. Your sentences can all run together. That's fine. But if we're being ironic, you're going to know. I mean, that actually probably would be better. But <laughs> So we're going to disagree on some things, and you're going to be like, which one of them is right? And the answer is neither of us. Like This, this is a famously resistant to interpretation piece, although there are plenty of people who have tried and many conflicting interpretations. So this is going to be one of the weirdest things we read the entire time, I think. Except for next we week's chose book, to do it next first. month's book. Which... Well, that's weird for a different reason, which we'll get to at the end. This was honestly <laughs> weird. Yes. Anyway, so with all that said, Plato's Phaedrus. I, as Stephen said, had never read Phaedrus before. I've read Republic. I've read bits and pieces here and there of other things. But Phaedrus is a dialogue, sort of. Most of Plato's dialogues are actual dialogues where different people in it offer different opinions. This one is basically Socrates and a psychophant. Sorry, Phaedrus, you're a psychophant. (laughs) You suck up to whoever you're talking to right now. Probably so, Socrates. (laughs) Probably so. Yeah, so it's it's a dialogue, but it's also not the most clear of the dialogues because it has the least amount of actual dialoguing in it, in that there are yes. three large speeches that essentially are the prolegnomena for the actual thing he wants to talk about, but like 
It's one of those things like in 1984 where there's that whole book inside a book that was really the reason that the book wanted to get written, but he had to write a story around the radical politics. That's sort of what the third speech is. It's sort of this radical interpretation of metaphysics that he really wanted to write. So he didn't bother like making it a dialogue. He just wrote it and then like wrote a dialogue around it. Which is part of what makes Phaedrus odd. Because what, for our purposes, gets pulled out as interesting is the discussion in roughly the last third to half, depending on how your pages are text set and everything else, around which form of rhetoric is most effective, how to make your rhetoric effective, and the limitations of books in the context of rhetoric, which is where Plato gets his reputation as someone who hates books. But which he somewhat earns, and we'll talk about that we, in a minute. We will. But that's the last roughly third to half, and the first half to two thirds is all building up to this very long speech preceded by two other, not quite as long, but still not short speeches about the nature of reality as indicated by love for a very specific definition of love. Here, we should note that this is eros, not any of the other kinds of loves that the Greeks not talked about. philia or agape. Uh, and so the, the basic structure is that uh, Phaedrus and Socrates are walking along, and Phaedrus says, I heard this speech from Lysias, and uh, Socrates eggs him on for a while, and then uh, Phaedrus reads the speech, And it's about why you should give favors to people who are not in love as opposed to those who are in love. And it's essentially because those people who are in love are mad and their affections... insane. Insane. And their affections and actions and choices are all essentially temporary because when they fall in love with somebody else, then they'll make the opposite of what they did in that the person that they used to love, well, they won't love them anymore and they will do bad things to them in favor of doing good things to other people. So if you just gave favors to someone who was in their right mind, then you would have uh, philia friendship and it would be all fine and you wouldn't have to deal with any of the complications of uh, actual uh, romantic erotic entanglements. Now, There's a second speech that Socrates gives that says the same thing, but in a different way. It's much shorter, and it's more, we can call it structured. And then Socrates feels bad about giving this speech and says, I'm going to have to give a counter speech here in praise of Eros. Because I don't want to offend the gods. That would be a bad move. And my bad speech kind of might have been offensive. Even though I was just showing you that I could, off the spot, make a better speech than Lysias could. Right. And so he gives this very long speech for Plato. Plato does not like speeches, but he gives a very long speech for Plato about the metaphysical nature of the world. I'm not making this up. This is what is actually in the speech. He discusses that the nature of the soul is to be normatively outside of the body— It's only temporarily and occasionally and unfortunately inside the body. And when it's not in the body, it flies the circle of the universe that takes 10,000 years to do while they just observe and commune with things as they are. And so that's the true 
metaphysic of the world is that there's something outside of us where you can see things as they are and they they are all of you souls are together doing this thing and that's the real thing and every now and then when souls basically go bad (laughs) when they are dragged down by their darker of two horses their good nature and their bad nature into souls um they those souls inhabit people there's a whole comic section that's intended to be comic about like the order of souls in which uh <laughs> people go into like the the qualities of like the top level soul philosophers like, obviously philosophers and tyrants at the bottom but gymnasts are also in there <laughs> um also the mechanism by which they choose how souls from each individual class go into bodies is by drawing straws <laughs> which is entertaining. And um, and if you're a philosopher, you get to run through only 3,000-year-long cycles before you get to go back up into the heavens. If you're anybody else, you're, you you got to take all 10 cycles. So best to be a philosopher. Yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah, there's that. And so it's a real long thing about metaphysics. And, but the whole point is to say that when you your soul has seen the real thing, the real metaphysic, and then you are dropped back into a human you want and desire the real thing. And so when you see the real thing or flashes of the real thing, you desire whatever contains that thing. And oftentimes that which is contained, that thing, the beauty is in a person or in a speech or in the knowledge that is contained in a person. And so therefore, when you are loving a person or ultimately, knowledge, you are doing the greatest possible good thing because you are attaining to the way the universe actually is. And therefore, love is the best possible state for humans and not the worst possible state, as was previously (laughs) said in the previous two. So all of that is there. And then we get to talk about what actually matters to this epistemological <laughs> study. Not that we don't have, uh, if we were doing an ontological study, boy, would we have a time with the metaphysic of souls. And there's but an, we're not. certainly an interesting bit that touches on epistemology there, because how one recognizes the good is a critical feature in Plato's various dialogues. How does one yeah. see yeah. and become one with or become alike to the good. And that's true. This doesn't actually touch on that so much because Socrates, as Plato's mouthpiece here, is much more interested in establishing this metaphysic out of which a lot of his other ideas about epistemology and recognizing the good flow. So you don't get right. a lot in that first section. By the way, I just checked in my particular copy of this it is 11 out of the 49 pages that make up this dialogue devoted to that single speech which again not how plato normally works not at all so but once you get through that you now have two speeches one of which was uh a speech that was written down on a scroll that phaedrus reads from lysias yep one of which that socrates says that he got from somewhere else, but probably he just made up on the spot to not make Phaedrus feel bad. It's probably how that works. And a speech that he obviously had pre-delivered or pre-invented, but memorized. 
So we have three different forms right. of speech that are present. Notably, Stephen and I did not memorize this particular dialogue before we delivered it to you, dear listeners. Dear listeners, we're about to self-congratulate on that front. <laughs> what happens next is that they transition into an argument about rhetoric. Right. About the nature of speeches. And this is partially because Socrates is a cranky old man who's grumpy about uh, the kids these days and what they've been doing to my stuff. It's true. I. It's true! <laughs> I, I can't deny that that's an accurate characterization of Socrates, <laughs> at least in this dialogue. He in this really dialogue. does just read as, these kids these days, are what are they doing? They get off my lawn! It's... it's... <laughs> He's really specific. Socrates about it is too. the original old man yelling at the cloud. A cloud, and then he gets even more cranky, and he starts calling out all of his enemies by name and telling them how they suck. It's true. It's really which is true. super fantastic. It's really funny. Like I said, this is intended to be a funny sort of ironic bit. And and I'll say, I I didn't expect when I picked up Phaedrus to laugh quite as much as I did. I mean, it's not a comedy. Don't get me wrong. It's not. But there were definitely several points that induced chuckling, and there was one point early on where I just laughed out loud. And then I thought, I just laughed out loud at a dialogue by Plato. I did not see that coming. Yeah, yeah. So so they get into this argument, and Phaedrus is essentially arguing for Lysias. Lysias is not in the dialogue at all except by invocation. And Lysias writes stuff down books essentially what a terrible man and and in particular i'm i'm not sure if socrates accuses lysias in particular of this but he accuses other people of writing books on how to do rhetoric and this is one of the fundamental concerns that he has is that because you've just seen a fairly decent speech on like why you would do this particular thing or and then, like, a somewhat better speech on why you would do this particular thing. And then a really good speech in Gresham terms on the opposite, that the worst of them was the one that was written down and read off of a scroll. This being the case, Socrates then proceeds to declaim at considerable length, first of all, on what makes rhetoric good. And he traces out his argument by saying you want there to have a clear structure in it, you want to make sure that the point that you're driving at is established right out of the gate so that people know what you're talking about and the point you're trying to make, you want to tie it all together nicely at the end. If he sounds like your high school English teacher, you're not wrong. He basically traces out principles of good, I would say, basic rhetoric, the kinds of things that do in fact work very well in speeches and work very well in a lot of kinds of writing. But he has complaints about writing, and those complaints are twofold. One of them is effectively a matter of principle for him in that he thinks that even if you did all those things right in a book— in something you wrote down, you have a fundamental limitation in that you cannot see and interact with your audience. You don't know who the people you're writing to are. You don't know who's going to pick right. up your book. Whereas when you're giving a speech, you may have some idea 
who the people you're talking to are. In the case of the example he'd given, he's speaking specifically to Phaedrus. So he knows Phaedrus's background and Phaedrus's assumptions and who Phaedrus likes to hang out with and who Phaedrus has read and all of these things. So he can tailor his speech to Phaedrus. And importantly, the type of speeches that Phaedrus likes to hear. Exactly. And this is a critical part of Socrates's, therefore Plato's, criticism of books is you can't do that. You cannot, in a book, take and tailor your audience, tailor your delivery of a particular set of ideas to the audience to whom you're delivering it. You get to do it once and write it down, and then you have no no idea what kind of ninny is going to pick up your book and get all the wrong ideas from it. He also, though, thinks that books by structure tend to induce people to that kind of foolish reading. He gives the example of someone who thinks he's a physician because he's picked up a book and read a couple things out of it. And so he's worried that the reading of books, rather than committing things to memory in an oral fashion, tends to eliminate people's good sense of memory. So he thinks that books have these two strong limitations. One, you can't tailor them to your audience. And two... If you read a book, you think you've learned something, but you really haven't. If you're going to use a book, there might be okay ways to use it, but they're really just, you know, you can write stuff down that you already know as a comfort to yourself in your old age when your memory starts going. But that's really the only thing he says books are good for because of those two major limitations he sees. And now here's where part of my interpretation of the Phaedrus goes off of the traditional rails, which is that a lot of people, when they read the Phaedrus, they either read the first half because of the metaphysic, or they read the back half because of the rhetoric. But you can't do it without the two parts. Because if you get to the part where he says, people who read books don't know things, you're like, what? What does that even mean? Like, people who read books know things. Like, that's the point of reading a book. But because he's already told you about how souls are supposed to work right. and the ways that they are supposed to, like, at all costs seek knowledge, not just as a, a something that can be used, but as the ultimate good of the world, he sees dialogue and the living of doing the dialogue and rehearsing the knowledge and ingesting it as part of yourself as the way that you proceed towards the goodness of the total soul. And so books are not only bad because they're books, but because they stop you from continuously seeking forward in dialogue with other people towards the soul. You say, this book has what I need, and then you take that information, and then you go on. And so that's where the argument about uh, somebody with reading a book about the about doctoring comes in, because he even at one point says, do you think that this person could teach somebody else to be a doctor from what he knows? And Phaedrus is like, well, I guess he could teach him what he read. And Socrates is like, exactly. <laughs> and so Socrates' knowledge, the pursuit of the truth, big T truth, is the whole point of the soul. And if you just satisfy yourself with what you read in a book, then you're not really doing it right. Right. To trace that out a little from the text, there are a couple of quotes I have here that we might come back to, but the critical one for what Stephen's getting at is a comparison of writing to painting. The creations of the painter, he says, have the attitude of life, 
they look alive. And yet, if you ask them a question, they preserve a solemn silence. And the same may be said of speeches. You'd imagine that they had intelligence, but if you want to know anything and put a question to one of them, the speaker always gives one unvarying answer. And here he's referring to a speech that has been written down, because the whole point is that if you talk to a person who's actually giving you a speech, he can answer your questions. So he goes on, and when they have once been written down, they are tumbled about anywhere among those who may or may not understand them and know not to whom they should reply, to whom not. And if they are maltreated or abused, they have no parent to protect them and they cannot protect or defend themselves. So he's synthesizing these multiple threads we've talked about mm-hmm. where he's he's saying these the books have this problem of not knowing who their audience is. And they have this problem that they can be picked up and read by just anybody who might not be well-suited to them. But then fundamentally, as Stephen was just getting at, they're not alive, so they can't respond. They can't actually help you carry forward in that pursuit of truth and knowledge. So what good are they anyway? Well, memorials to be treasured against the forgetfulness of old age. That's what he thinks they're good for. Which that's a joke too, because Socrates is old in he's this, old and so he's, and so he's saying like they're good for literally nothing. I don't even need them, and I'm old. Like that's the joke. <laughs> so he he does dislike books probably even more than people who think he doesn't like books doesn't like books, but he doesn't like them for the reasons that people think he doesn't like them. It's not because they're novel. No pun intended no. about novels. But um No no, it's, no pun intended. And it's and it's not because they uh hurt your memory explicitly. I mean, that's part of the argument, but he didn't say like memory is important and therefore books are bad. It's much more wrapped up in the nature of the soul and the good and seeking this sort of dialogue as the ideal form of knowledge creation, which is sort of self-serving because he's like, hey, the best thing you could possibly do with your life is the thing I do. Yep. And notably, the, the part where he argues about memory is not to say that books are bad because they don't do memory the same way that oral tradition does. It's rather as a correction to say that books don't have the effect that people think they do when it comes to memory. So he retells a Greek myth, which Phaedrus accuses him of making up, and then Socrates busts out the, son, are you going to trump the authorial fallacy on me? That's, even if it's not true that this actually happened, the point stands, which was hilarious. Socrates it's, gets a little pissy there. He's like... It's it's really uh, a, a quite a, a funny book, if you can catch the ironies, yeah. which but the, I did not catch any of the first time, which contributed to why I hated it. In his probably made-up-on-the-spot story about a god in Egypt talking to the person who invented letters, he has his god say, The specific which you have discovered is an aid not to memory, but to reminiscence, and you give your disciples not truth, but only the semblance of truth. They will be hearers of many things and will have learned nothing. They will appear to be omniscient and will generally know nothing. They will be tiresome company, having the show of wisdom without the reality. So, make no mistake, he's down on books, but... He's down on books because he thinks they don't actually lead to knowledge or wisdom, and they don't, in fact, lead to memory. And so it's a correction of the idea that books do produce wisdom or knowledge or memory. It's not that they have no use, even in this God's correction. He says, 
you've got half of it, right? They're going to do half of what you wanted, but but not this memory or wisdom part. Right. And that's because he continuously appeals back to what is the soul supposed to be doing anyway? Well, the soul is supposed to be aspiring to the greatest possible truth in communion with the other souls circling the universe endlessly until they get unfortunately cast down into human bodies. So endlessly talking about truth with other souls and circling the local universe is the best thing we can possibly do towards achieving the ultimate form. Right. It's the best imitation of that and the That's best right. way to get our souls into the right shape to maybe get back up there. Right. And so the the whole concept of thinking about uh, books is to him not just books as objects or as concepts are bad, but books as a way of living are the wrong way of living if you want to pursue the ultimate truth. Right. As he very nearly closes, it's a page and a half before the end in my copy of the dialogue, He, his real argument is even the best of writings are but a reminiscence of what we know, and that only in principles of justice and goodness and nobility taught and communicated orally for the sake of instruction and graven in the soul, which is the true way of writing, is there clearness and perfection and seriousness. He's, he's really down on books because he doesn't think they can change your soul. And this argument, frankly, hasn't gone away. Andy Matushak published an essay last year in which he made exactly the same claims for totally different reasons and with very different interest in what to do to respond. Kaboom! But the same claims. We're going to circle back in the next episode and talk about what we want to do with some of these claims and what we might nothing think about That's or argue with, with them, them or is nothing. Yeah. That's not true. <laughs> That's not true. It's not true. I actually had a really interesting observation that we'll get to next time. That's right. So, so you have now survived our first discussion of an argument from a book. We will talk about the oh fact that gosh. this is written down next time because you yeah. cannot avoid. You can't avoid that. It. You can't avoid it. Every everything comes with caveats in this series. We're going to be caveating the caveats by the time we're done with this <laughs> book club. But thanks for listening. This is uh, an experiment for us, even more experimenty than our usual experiments, <laughs> and so, which is pretty experimental. It's pretty experimental for us. So, uh, let us know if you liked it, if you were interested, or if you were like. Uh, please stop and go back to doing what you were doing before. We're open to like figuring out how to get best at this. We're sort of wandering our way through it at the moment. It's true. So we promised you that we would tell you what book we were doing next. And that book is The Postmodern Condition by Jean-Francois Leotard. I just call him Leotard. Uh, and we, and you may be like, oh man, the postmodern condition—that's like a, it's like a heavy hitter. We thought so too until we started researching it. And apparently, Leotard thinks it's his worst book, and he like admits that he made parts of it up. And like, we're not really sure what's going to happen to us next time because I'm checking it right now. Almost thirty-two thousand people cited Leotard in their work, and he admits that it's kind of a parody. So we're going to read about that. We're going to figure it out and see what's in there.
The music at the beginning of the episode was Oak Forest by Ivan Wela, used by permission. So, of course, please don't use it by permission. If you liked it, we'll have a link in the show notes and you can go check it out. As Stephen said, we'd love to hear from you about this episode. Shoot us an email at hello at winningslowly.org, or you can tweet at us at winningslowly, and Stephen will eventually see it. That's or right. you can send us a Facebook message, and Stephen will very eventually see it. That's I right. remain happily off social media, unlike occasionally referenced figure Alan Jacobs, Alan. who's back. Alan. <laughs> What are you doing? You're you're promoting a book. We understand. But still, it is hilarious. I remain off because I'm not promoting a book. Ta-da! If you're interested in supporting the show, you can do so at Patreon. And if you haven't done that yet, you can go to Patreon and see us uh, actually updating the Patreon (laughs) tiers for the first time in five years. You, You could send us a message on Patreon and I would see that. Oh, he would, yeah. But uh, so we have new tiers there for you to peruse. Um, If you already support us, thank you very much. Uh, If you're interested in supporting us, uh, you can go there to Patreon. You can also do uh, direct cash, cash cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. We appreciate all of the support that we get. It helps us keep the website running and we've bought microphones with it before. And so we don't just like... I don't know what we would do with it. We don't spend it frivolously, <laughs> is what I'm saying. It is true. It is so we true. appreciate that, and check it out. All of our content is always available under a Creative Commons attribution license, and you can do cool stuff with it if you feel like it. Tell us if you do. We'd love that. Yeah. Until next time, thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening. In Greek and Grecian, Grecian, in Grecian.